Okay, this is a scene from one of the most watched and most beloved sitcoms of my generation. In fact, it's, it's a scene from the first episode. It's only about a minute in. This guy walks into a coffee shop and you can see the rain pouring down in a window behind him. He's holding an umbrella, but apparently he has no idea how to use an umbrella because he's totally soaking. His hair, his face, his clothes, they're all dripping. And he walks up behind the couch in the middle of the room where his sister and three friends are sitting around this long, low coffee table cluttered with magazines. And he says, hi. That's my impression of him. One of his friends responds. This guy says, hello, I want to kill myself. The studio audience, or maybe it's a canned audio track, I don't really know, breaks into laughter. And that is how the world gets introduced to the character of Ross Geller on the show Friends. So Ross, still dripping wet, offers a heartfelt description of how he's feeling, and Chandler offers him a cookie. Monica explains that Ross's wife has just left him, so Phoebe tries to clean his aura, and Joey suggests maybe they should go to a strip club. (laughs) These are Ross's friends. There's another episode where Ross convinces everyone to begrudgingly join him on the rooftop to watch a comet pass overhead. But as soon as he tries to explain how the comet got its name, they all moan and get up to leave. The only way he can get them to sit down again is by promising, okay, no teaching. Within the first two minutes of the show, they've all abandoned him, except Joey, and he's only there because he removed a piece of pipe that was propping the door open, so he's just stuck up there. Ross is, I don't know, kind of a polarizing figure on that show. Well, I don't know, maybe polarizing is pushing it too far. But I mean, the point I'm trying to make is most people would not describe Ross as their favorite friend, except me. I feel for Ross. Over 10 seasons, he puts up with a ton of crap from these people who supposedly care about him. And it's at its worst anytime Ross talks about his work or anything scientific. I mean, the guy is a paleontologist. Of course he's going to talk about that stuff. He works at a museum or teaches at a university, depending which season you're watching of the show. But his friends, and I'm using air quotes here, his friends, they're always groaning and saying how boring Ross is whenever he brings up anything even mildly intellectual. Sure, Rachel can talk about her shoes. Chandler can tell some self-deprecating story about riding the bus with his mom. That's totally fine. But right from the beginning and right till the end, 10 years, same joke gets repeated over and over. Being smart, Well, that's stupid. Explaining their behavior is pretty simple. Ross is an outsider. He's different. He's a little older. He's a little more established. He doesn't have a roommate. He's the only character that's been married. I mean, it surprises no one that Joey, the TV actor, and Phoebe, the hippie singer, are friends. No one blinks an eye that Chandler and Rachel get along. But Ross, Ross doesn't seem to fit with the rest of the group. He's too smart. This theme goes well beyond 10 seasons of primetime Thursday nights on NBC. Scientists have been a punching bag for decades. Large and small screens for generations have been filled with nerds getting shoved into lockers and geeks getting wedgies. And I'll tell you, that kind of stuff happens in real life, too. Here's a film from 1951 talking to kids about fitting in. Susan, Susan Jane, what's the matter with you? Why is everyone else having such a good time when you're not? Why do they always leave you out? Do you look different? Is it some way you act? What makes you the outsider? Well, maybe not fitting in and being a scientist aren't so independent. Why do the other kids do everything differently? They choose different things. 
They stick together on everything. Why are you always the one who's out of step? Being a good scientist means you have to think differently. And maybe that means you act differently. And maybe that means that the cool kids in the coffee shop laugh at you every once in a while. Well, what in the world's matter? I'm Dan Riskin, and this is Inside the Breakthrough, How Science Comes to Life. It is this that has given us the remarkable achievements of science in modern times. On this show, we learn from the past so we can better understand the future. Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life. I spent years with the Discovery Channel interviewing scientists so I could better explain how they work and how they think but I'm also a scientist. I'm a zoologist and I have a particular passion for a certain group of nocturnal flying mammals, but I won't say which one. So here's what I wanna do here in this series is explain the modern story of one particular scientist using the stories of other great scientists from the past. The research worker working in the fields of pure science to reveal more of the mysteries of the universe. This podcast is produced by a medical research group called SIMAR. And that one particular scientist whose story I want to tell is its founder, Dr. Wayne Lott. Dr. Lott is working toward a breakthrough in the fight against type 2 diabetes. He and his team are taking on that challenge from a unique perspective, and because they're taking the path less traveled, well, there have been a few obstacles. This isn't a new thing. In fact, every bump in the road they've encountered is something that's happened before to some other scientific pioneer. So we're going to follow their journey with some visitors from the past. This is Episode 3, The Outsider. The city of Warsaw in the late 1800s was a tough place to grow up. I mean, I don't know that firsthand. I grew up in Edmonton, Canada in the early 80s. And other than the cold winters, I don't think those two cities have a lot in common. But yeah, Warsaw was tough. Now, Warsaw is now part of Poland. But at the time our story takes place, Poland, well, it didn't really exist. It had been taken over by Russia. The worlds of business, industry, education, those were all being run by the Russians. And those Russians were doing their best to assimilate all the Polish citizens to their way of life. Now, that forced people into one of two groups. Either you gave in and you started speaking Russian and eating Russian food and all of that, or you become an ardent but secretive Polish nationalist. Now, this story revolves around the youngest daughter of a family of faithful Polish nationalists. The dad is a physics teacher. The mom, headmistress of an all-girls school. Outwardly, they behave like good Russian citizens, but at home, they teach their kids to speak Polish. And more importantly, to think freely and independently. Now, I'm not gonna go into a lot of detail here, but in a nutshell, they had five kids. They were poor because the economy wasn't doing that well and the Russians weren't exactly being fair to the Polish people who lived there. The mom dies of tuberculosis when the kids are young. So life is, well, it's hard. It's hard in ways that most of us, thankfully, can't even imagine today. Now, the youngest daughter in this family, that's who this whole story is about, is named Manya Sklodowska. She is the smartest of the bunch. She graduates from high school at the top of her class. But going to university is very expensive, and she doesn't have much money. 
Besides, the Russian education system is not very supportive of young Polish women wanting to study science, so she can't really go to school. After high school, she takes a job as a governess. That's kind of like a housekeeper or a nanny. And that's what she does for six years until she's saved up enough money to leave Russia and go to France so she can study at the Sorbonne. Now, the Sorbonne was founded in the year 1150. Its alumni includes popes and royalty. At the time, many considered it the greatest academic institution in the Western world. So when Manya walks into her first class on day one, try to imagine what the other students look like. Are they in their mid-twenties already because they've also spent six years as a nanny to save up for school? Or are they fresh out of high school and living off daddy's money? Did they speak Polish and Russian, or were they fluent in French? Or, you know what, let's just cut to the chase. Were they boys or were they girls? They were boys. If you think Ross was the odd one out at Central Park, well, Manya Sklodowska was about as unlikely a student at the Sorbonne as you could possibly imagine. Now, her first effort at fitting in was to change her name to Marie. So that's what I'm going to call her going forward. And I think some of you just figured out who this story's about, but shh, don't spoil the surprise. Marie was a brilliant student. Despite everything stacked against her, she graduated with honors. She got a job studying the magnetic properties of various metals. And in that job, she shared a laboratory with a physicist named Pierre. They worked together on things that attract one another. And, well, I guess it rubbed off on them because they fell in love. Pierre proposed to Marie, and Marie said no. See, the thing was, she still saw herself as a Polish patriot living abroad, and her dream was to return to her native land, teach her fellow Poles math and science, and lift the Polish nation out from under the thumb of Imperial Russia. So she said, no, je suis vraiment désolé, Pierre. That summer, Marie went home and applied for a professorship at the Krakow University. And when she did that, she was told by the Russian administrators that there never had been, nor would there ever be, a woman teaching science at their esteemed institution. Marie, quite simply, didn't fit. So, back to Paris she went, and back to Pierre. They got married, and as was the custom of the time, Marie took his name. So, that is how Manya Sklodowska became Marie Curie. Okay, hopefully everybody's caught up now. This is the story of the most famous woman in the history of science. So next, Marie Curie sets her sights on a doctorate. And just in case you were wondering, no woman in all of Europe had ever gotten a doctoral degree in science research before. So this was an ambitious plan, to say the least. To get started, she needed a thesis project, or at least an area of study. Late in 1895, in a little university laboratory in Bavaria, Professor Wilhelm Conrad Röntgen first noticed the strange effect which led to the announcement of his discovery of X-rays. The entire scientific world was captivated by this discovery. Doctors immediately saw the possibilities of the mysterious new rays and began to use them. The medical and scientific uses of X-rays were obvious. 
But there was a long list of scientific questions about how they worked. For a long time, after X-rays were discovered and used, they remained a mystery even to the scientist. That is how they got their name, X for the unknown. In a nutshell, studying X-rays was the trendy choice. All the cool kids were doing it. So, of course, being the independent thinker, Marie decided to go in a different direction. In 1896, just one year after Röntgen's X-ray discovery, another physicist, Henri Becquerel, discovered a similar kind of penetrating ray. These were naturally occurring rays of energy that came from uranium. They didn't require an external source of energy like X-rays did, but unlike X-rays, they didn't produce those stunningly clear images either. All they'd ever produced were these black smudges on white backgrounds. The scientific community, by and large, didn't see a lot of promise in this new discovery, so they continued focusing on X-rays. But Marie Curie, the rebel that she was, decided to focus on Becquerel's rays. She spent two years isolating and measuring the rays given off by uranium. She wrote a paper and showed that another element, thorium, also emitted these invisible rays, but not quite as strongly as uranium. All of this was regarded as solid science, but it didn't really move the needle. There was, however, one line in her paper, largely overlooked at the time, that would ultimately define her life's work. She noticed that the rocks she was getting her uranium from, something called pitch blend, were giving off more radiation than pure uranium. Here's what she wrote. The fact is very remarkable and leads to the belief that these minerals may contain an element which is much more active than uranium. Seems logical enough. Now, here's the thing. At this point, scientists had more or less completed what they thought was the total periodic table of the elements. In other words, they had a list of all the elements they expected to be able to find in the known universe. They were very sure that there were no more naturally occurring elements to be discovered. And certainly not by a woman from Poland. That was sort of a scientific fact that most people didn't question. But Marie Curie did question it. And so she started examining pitch blend, breaking it down chemically to find out what else was in there that was giving off this strange energy. It took almost two years, but as she had expected, in June of 1898, she discovered a new element. Marie named it polonium, after her native Poland. It was around this time that she also coined the word radioactivity. And yes, polonium was even more radioactive than uranium. But the remaining ore she was getting all this stuff out of, it was still radioactive. So she kept searching. Six months later, she published strong evidence supporting the existence of yet another new element, something she named radium. Now, that should have done it, right? It's a career-defining discovery, a finding that would bring the world to her doorstep. But the world did not come to her doorstep. The only people that came to her doorstep were skeptics. Radium is really unstable, so she didn't have a big dish of it sitting in the lab that she could show people. She couldn't say, see that stuff there? That's radium. So the scientific community was having a hard time accepting the word of a woman that two new elements needed to be added to the periodic table. They wanted proof a physical sample of the element radium that they could weigh, that they could test. 
Now, I'm not the first person to tell this story, obviously, and there's this 1950s movie about Marie Curie's life, and frankly, it's a bit melodramatic, but it imagines the kinds of conversations that this most unusual husband and wife would have been having around this time. The world has done without radium until now. What does it matter if it is not isolated? Wait, why is this accent French? No, I've got it. Never mind. Just use the clip. The world has done without radium up to now. What does it matter if it isn't isolated for another hundred years? I can't give it up. If it takes a hundred years, it would be a pity. But I'm going to see how far I can go my lifetime. Okay, so I don't know if they really had that conversation. Kind of hope they did, though. If you jump forward to today, there's all kinds of conversation about how unfair the world of science is to women. And yes, it is still totally unfair, but it's not as unfair as it was in Marie Curie's time, right? So I would love to know what Marie Curie said about it at that time. I want to know what she said to her husband about it. Well, whatever she said, it was enough to convince Pierre to join in. So he sets all his own research aside and he joins Marie Curie in her crusade. Together, they cobble together whatever little money they have. They buy this old barn. It's really more of a shed, but everybody calls it a barn. It's it's a crappy place. It's drafty, the roof leaks, but it gives them a place to work. And then they bring in piles and piles of pitch blend, and they start breaking it down chemically, trying to get at the radio. It's around this time that Marie and Pierre both start to get sick. Their fingers get all weathered and gnarled. They both are chronically exhausted. And at the time, it just seemed like they were working too many late nights in the lab. But of course, we all know now that they were getting sick because of radiation that they were exposed to on a daily basis. Nobody knew what this stuff was, and nobody knew how dangerous it was. So they're sick. They're working hard. They have hardly any money. These, I mean, these must have been very hard years. On top of that, they have two young daughters. I mean, they've got no encouragement from the rest of the scientific community. There's no end in sight, but they work away. And together, they break down ton after ton after ton of raw ore. Until finally, in 1902, this is four years after she told the world it existed, Marie Curie presents one-tenth of a gram of radium. A tenth of a gram. That is so small. That is like 25 grains of sand. That is nothing. That, I mean, you can imagine that sitting in a little dish. One sneeze and it's gone forever. But of course, they didn't sneeze. And now they had undeniable proof that the element radium existed. Finally, after all that, the scientific world did embrace them. Well, didn't embrace them so much as him. The couple was invited to the Royal Institution in London to give a speech on radioactivity, but of course, Marie is just a woman, so she's not allowed to speak. Pierre, basically her lab assistant, delivers the address. And not long thereafter, Pierre is notified that he is getting the Nobel Prize for his discovery. Now, good on Pierre, because he wrote a letter to the committee explaining that this was really Marie's work and that the award should be in her name. The Nobel Committee considered, and eventually, approved this request. Marie's name was added to the nomination and she became the first woman to be awarded a Nobel Prize. Just a quick side note, Marie and Pierre never patented their work, so they never profited from it. And this seems like the nice thing to do. You know, we're not in it for the money and research should benefit the whole world and all that. But just imagine how much more they could have accomplished if they were rich, if they had a ton of money to equip a really nice lab and hire more assistants. It's a bit of a rabbit hole, 
and I'm going to go really deep into the whole idea of making science profitable versus giving it all away in a later episode, but I just want to plant that seed here now so I can come back to it later. The story of Marie Curie is incredibly compelling, not just because of all the things she accomplished, but because she was able to get anything done with all the odds that were stacked against her. I mean, there was the gender discrimination, right? And I mean, that is putting it lightly. The whole world was against her on that front. Plus, she faces a lot of the same problems that scientists experience even today. Shortage of funding, inadequate laboratory facilities, having to manage a teaching load while doing research, or having kids and having to deal with childcare and your career and how to balance all of that. On top of that, she's an immigrant. So she's struggling with the language, she's struggling with the culture, and she's got this goal that she wants to return to her native land and, you know, do science there. But she knows that ultimately, if she leaves France and goes back, she's going to be giving up on her dreams because she's never going to be able to get the things done there that she wants to really do. It's a, it's a lot. And on top of all that, when it comes to grabbing attention and funding for her work, she has this tendency to stay out of the spotlight. Now, maybe that's because she'd been burned a whole bunch of times. She's gotten lots of attention already, and all of it was negative. But, you know, as a result of this, people always talk about Marie Curie being single-minded and introverted. I have to think that's a defense mechanism. I don't know, the whole thing together, it, it just seems like no matter how you try to put Marie Curie into some kind of category, the only one that really fits is that you just can't put her into a category. She doesn't have any peers. There's no one like her. She's an outsider. So this is the point in the show where we pivot from the historical to the current. And just for some context, you remember when Marie Curie was working away in a drafty barn, breaking down tons of pitch blend in search of one-tenth of a gram of radium? Well, that is where Dr. Wayne Lott and the researchers at Symar have gotten to right now. But instead of piles of rock, they're sifting through blood. Ugh. And instead of a radioactive element, they're searching for the hormone Hiss. Now, they've shown it's in there, but like Marie Curie, they just haven't produced enough of a sample that they can put it on display. Okay, let's get back to the idea of scientists as outsiders. Now, I raised that with Dr. Lott, and he has a totally different take on it than I do, specifically on what scientists need to do to get their ideas taken seriously by their peers. He says it starts by working really hard not to be an outsider. In other words, don't be Ross. I was an athlete in school, an Edmonton City weightlifting champion, and I placed in track and field. I've done kung fu. He's even working on a novel. I found that writing fiction was a real refreshing break from writing science. That science writing is important, though. You have to do that well if you want people to understand your ideas. You certainly have to be a communicator because one of the things you learn early on is that there's no point in doing good science if you don't communicate it. Then it's just self-centered, self-serving. Dr. Lott splits his time between his research and teaching, just like Ross Geller and Marie Curie. That's right, I just put Ross Geller and Marie Curie in the same sentence. So I'll just check that off my bucket list here. There we go. If you're standing up in front of a group of a couple of hundred people that are sitting there and have the courtesy of paying attention to you without throwing vegetables or anything, you've got a responsibility to educate, but also to do it in a way that, that's pleasant for the audience. And that means you do have to put on a bit of a show. You know, I'd say when I left the lab to head over to the lecture hall, okay, guys, it's time to put on my tap shoes, my cane and my silk hat, and it's showtime. That decision to put on his tap shoes helped to make him a great teacher. 
But when you take it out of the classroom, it gets a little darker. And I told my guys one of the things in terms of the politics was that uh, any award that comes up that any of us may be eligible for, I had a committee set up to look at making sure that we got out there and did the publicity thing that we need to do. (sighs) Just listening to Dr. Lott say that does make me feel just a little bit, I don't know, icky. I mean, you want to be a purist about it, right? They're scientists. This is not a PR firm. But I don't know. It is the real world. Sometimes scientists do have to wear other hats to get things done. Anyway, Lott's lab assistants nominated him for a Michael Smith Award for Outstanding Medical Research. He got the award, and that award came with a financial grant that helped move the work forward. In all, Lott's efforts resulted in over $9 million in funding. Now, that money has come from the Canadian Diabetes Association, the Heart and Stroke Foundation, and many others. But still... Even to Lot himself, the whole process of yelling, hey, look at me, just somehow doesn't feel right. Having to get out there and put on a show to bring attention has always not seemed like a good thing to me. Uh, frankly, almost not honorable. Getting out there and communicating, that's one thing. But doing it for the purpose of bringing attention, that, that's really difficult to do. And I, I understand the need for it. And I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm sort of playing the game, but anybody that knows me knows that my strengths lie elsewhere. That reluctance is something you see in a lot of scientists. Consider Marie Curie. When she became the first woman to get a Nobel Prize, well, you're supposed to go to Sweden to claim your prize. She delayed that for three years. Because, frankly, she would rather be alone, working in her lab, surrounded by radioactive rocks, than giving a speech in front of an adoring audience. One last thing about Dr. Lott. For most of his career, he did pretty well at not being an outsider. Within the scientific community, he was pretty mainstream. He had a high-ranking position at a respectable university. But then he announced his discovery about his and the parasympathetic nerves in the liver. And, well, suddenly, he was Ross. He was the guy that no one wanted to talk to. Even that Michael Smith award he got, one of the biggest awards you can be given as a Canadian scientist, the one that came with a huge cash grant, well, to claim it, you had to find a second source of funding to match it, and no one stepped up. So he never got that money. He was left standing in the coffee shop, dripping wet, holding a perfectly good umbrella. If a scientist is too much of an outsider, if they're not willing to play the game at all, there's a very real chance that their discovery will get totally ignored, or in many cases, that it'll be scooped by someone else who's better able to bring their message to the masses. But some discoveries fail to get their due for a much darker reason. See, to discover something new usually means you're challenging or disproving somebody else's work. And being the person that says, hey everybody, that thing you all really believe in? Well, it's not quite right. Well, that can make you very unpopular, especially if the findings you're taking a critical look at come from Nobel Prize-winning researchers like Frederick Banting and Charles Best. Next time on Inside the Breakthrough, I want to ask the question, why do some people say that will never work? And how does that impact research? That'll be episode four, Unpopular Science. I'm Dan Riskin. Be sure to subscribe to the series. You'll be the person with the best stories at your next dinner party. 
Oh, one last thing. I mentioned earlier how much respect I have for Marie Curie, but one thing always amazes me. It's that she had absolutely no idea how dangerous all that radiation was to her health. I mean, year after year, she's working in this laboratory with bottles of polonium and radium all around her with no clue that it's killing her. In fact, sometimes she would turn off the lights in the lab and just marvel at them. She wrote in her autobiography, It was really a lovely sight and one always new to us. The glowing tubes look like faint fairy lights. It's very creepy to me that the thing that ultimately killed her looked like a cute little bunch of fairies. (laughs) 